with us. My name's Dave, by the way. I'm the pastor preaching here at Four Oaks, and you've really picked a great time to, to kind of wade into what we're doing here because we've, we've uh, hit the pause on a series that we've been in since September on the book of Acts, and, uh, and we're studying a, right now a, a series called Beyond the Shadowlands. Now, now, just so you understand, Shadowlands is a term that C.S. Lewis used to describe life here on earth. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to really look at two different, really fascinating questions. One, what happened when Christ died, after Christ died? You know, where did he go? What, you know, what took place in, in heaven when Christ died? And then secondly, what, what happens after we die? And so beyond the shadowlands means beyond life here on earth. And last week when we were together at Easter, we began looking at what happened when Christ arrived in heaven. What, what did it mean that he was seated in heaven and the rich biblical significance that is, uh, that, that, that's filled with that imagery. So today, though, we, uh, we move our attention to Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up there, Romans chapter 8. Title of the message is the advocate, the advocate, and we're going to look at verse 34, just one verse this morning, verse 34 of Romans chapter 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you that you lived the perfect life while you walked on this planet. You died a substitutionary death. You rose on the third day. You ascended into heaven, and you were seated at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, we pray now that you would help us to understand even more of the rich significance of that seating, of what it means for you to be in heaven right now on our behalf, and to be interceding for us each and every moment of each and every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin this morning with a trivia question, and the question is this. What does Joe DiMaggio, who's a baseball player, and Florence Joyner, remember Flo Joe from the, from the Olympics, Florence Joyner, and John Elway, football player, what does Joe DiMaggio, Florence Joyner, and John Elway all have in common? The answer is that they all became champions and then retired. And there's something about that that almost seems good and right and natural. I mean, after all, they're, they're engaged in this epic test of talent and will and endurance. And having succeeded, having been victorious, they retire to this kind of well-deserved rest, a reprieve, a, a respite, if you will. 
You know, it's, it's Frodo after destroying the ring in Mordor, you're losing a finger, winning the great epic battle between good and evil, and yet he still suffers under the effects of the, the stabbing that took place or the spider that poisoned him or just the, the physical and psychological effects of this great adventure that he was on. And so he, he leaves at the end of the books, Middle-earth, and sails off to the undying lands for what is presumed to be the eternal rest that he has so richly deserved. And, you know, you read that, and there's a kind of peace that, that settles on your soul. That's good. That's right. We think, yes, there is a sense where a glorious victory should earn an epic rest. But in Romans chapter 8, we meet Christ after his glorious victory over sin. The dominion of sin has been broken through the cross and resurrection. In Ephesians chapter 4, we learn that he led a host of captives free. All of this is going on. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, Christ Jesus died and was raised and then was seated at the right hand of God. Last week, we unpacked together what it meant that he was seated, that he sat down. You know, for you and I, when we sat down, that typically means we're grabbing the remote. But for Christ, his, trig his, his sitting represented something far more significant. His sitting signified that God offered the sacrifice. The sacrifice of Christ's life was accepted for our sins. That the inauguration of the heavenly part of his kingdom had begun. That the Holy Spirit would be sent to the world so that the believers in Christ could experience the personal presence of God himself within them. But this didn't end the Savior's activity for us. His seating actually triggered a whole other phase of activity on the part of the Lord, something that theologians often call the, the session. Now, when we hear the word session, I understand we're in Tallahassee. It's April. It's all about session all around us. I read this past week that something like 1,182 different pieces of legislation are being bandied about in this session, but that's not what we're talking about. Session, as it relates to Christ, literally means sitting or the act of sitting. Session describes where Christ sat and began the next phase of his high priestly role. Well, you say, Dave, what's the next phase of his high priestly role? Well, the answer is, in a word, intercession. Intercession. Now, don't let that word throw you if you're, not, if you're not familiar with it at all. Intercession simply means praying on behalf of another person. It means standing in for them, mediating on behalf of them. So one of the things that's so fascinating about this heavenly scene is that God in Christ seated it is that it intentionally mirrors the Old Testament temple and what was going on back then. So you might remember from last week, we learned last week that the priests and the offering and the sacrifices existed to temporarily satisfy God's wrath for sin. But it wasn't simply for that reason because it also foreshadowed a day that was coming when there would be a permanent priest 
and a permanent sacrifice that would be offered, a sacrifice that would replace all that took place in the Old Testament and under the Old Testament law and would be permanent. But prior to that, that whole system, the law, the sacrifices, the priests, were only ever a a copy of the original. The writer of Hebrews talks about them being a shadow of the substance of what God had. You know, when you're sitting at an FSU game and, and, and the sh- you're looking down at the field and the shadow of a blimp crosses the field. Well, you don't point down at the field and say, this is unbelievable. Look at a blimp in the middle of the field. Isn't that crazy? Let's run down. Let's see the blimp. It's on the field. No, because it's just the shadow. And what the shadow causes you to do is, is look upward to see the blimp. See, the priests, the sacrifices, the temple, all of those were shadows that pointed you upward, pointed you up to a much higher reality, pointed us up to God, up to what God would do in Jesus Christ. So returning to that imagery then, in the temple, the high priest would enter. And the high priest would have a certain kind of clothing on. When he would enter, he would have this ephod, which is just these different shoulder pieces that he would wear. And on these shoulder pieces were engraved the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the idea here was that the high priest would enter into the presence of God and he would bring the names of God's people. Exodus 16 says, before the Lord continually. He carries the names of the people of God into the presence of God, and there he begins to intercede for them. There he begins to make their weaknesses known and pray for them and bring their needs before God. Also, on the holy altar, there were these bowls, two different bowls, and these bowls were constantly burning incense. And the incense that they were constantly burning symbolized the prayers of God's people. And the reason the bulls were attached to the altars was because it was the sacrifice upon the altar that made the prayers acceptable to God. So the situation that you have there is, in order for the prayers to be acceptable, it required a priest making a sacrifice. So you had the priest coming in, you had him making the sacrifice that made the prayers acceptable to God. So the whole Old Testament is setting the stage for something else that would come and replace all of that and fulfill all of that. It was all pointing forward to a day that would come where all of that strange imagery would, imagery would be embodied in a person. And so in the New Testament comes Jesus Christ. Both priest and sacrifice bound together, bearing our names to the altar and spilling his blood upon the altar. Our high priest rose on the third day and is seated next to God in heaven. And now our high priest is making sure as he's seated next to the father that our prayers are heard by God. And that our prayers are acceptable to God. In other words, he is working hard to mediate on our behalf. Do you remember how earlier I said that, that a glorious victory earns an epic rest? Well, Christ 
isn't taking an epic rest right now. He didn't, he didn't punch out. He didn't learn a hobby. He's not drawing on his IRA right now. He is, according to Romans chapter 10, interceding for us. I love the way the writer of Hebrews says it, ever living to make intercession for us. Listen, that's why we pray in Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Because as Christians, we believe with all of our hearts the the words of Scripture. And Scripture says that there is one mediator between God and man, and that mediator is not named Muhammad, it's not named Mary. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. And so Christ is up there right now. He's up there receiving our prayers and then interceding for us before the Father. And when the Father sees the crucified Son seated next to him, bearing our names upon his heart and upon his chest, hearing our needs from his lip, the crucified Son of God, the Father immediately responds because he has the ble- the Son has the blessing of the Father. The Son has won the approval of the Father by his sacrifice. And here's the thing. This session is not something in the future. And it's not something that ends the first week of May. This session is going on right this very moment. And this is what's meant when you hear the words, Christ is our intercessor. He's interceding for us. So let's think a little bit about what this really represents. What what does this intercession really accomplish for us? I've got two different points I want to cover with you. What does this intercession really accomplish? Number one, we get an advocate. We get an advocate. You know, part of being alive today is to feel accused. It's to feel ashamed. It's to experience condemnation. There's a reason this passage that we're reading this morning starts with, who is to condemn you? Because condemnation is part of life in a broken world. Condemnation is part of the human experience. I mean, think about your life apart from Christ. If you're here and you don't yet know Christ, Scripture says that unbelievers, whether they are conscious of it or not, live under the sentence of judgment for their sins. But condemnation and accusations and shame and embarrassment and, and, and guilt that doesn't, isn't confined to unbelievers. We all have ongoing sins that we're dealing with. We all have ongoing sins which cause guilt in our lives. And it would be enough if it ended there, but there's a lot more going on as well. Because we all have one other thing that's working against us too. And that is that we have an enemy of our souls who is constantly accusing us. You know, the name Satan literally means adversary or accuser. You may may remember when we studied Job, how in the beginning of Job, the angels are presenting themselves before God and in comes Satan. And what does Satan immediately begin to do? He begins to accuse Job before God. Revelation 12 calls him the accuser 
of the brothers, the accuser of the brethren. So I've got some really bad news for you this morning if you didn't know it. If you didn't know it, you have an enemy far more powerful than you ever dared to imagine who is bent on accusing you, condemning you, and filling your life with shame. And if that's not bad enough, you also have the world and the flesh arrayed against you, dedicated to dragging your soul down to hell. You say, my, that is bad news. It is. But here's the good news. In fact, let me just read it right out of Scripture. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know what that means? We have an advocate. That means we have a backer. We have a supporter. We have an activist who is committed to our best interest. And he's not emailing his defense of us in from a retirement home out in San Diego. But he is seated right next to the Father. And listen, he is passionate about you. You know, if you had committed some kind of heinous crime, who do you want at your table representing you? Who do you want at your table defending you? Do you want an attorney that despises you, that doesn't care about you? that has no care or interest or stake in your future whatsoever? Or do you want some, someone that loves you so much that they would fight for you to the very death? In Jesus Christ, we have one who gave his life, and now he's taken up a post in heaven, seated next to the Father, and this is what he's doing. He's advocating for us. So with every accusation that comes, there is a response from the Son of God. With every hint of guilt, there is this vigorous defense that takes place by the voice of God himself. With every stumble, there is one who prays us back to our feet. And this is how Paul described him. Who who is there to condemn? Or describe what Jesus is doing. Christ Jesus is is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding. For us, I mean, please, let's, let's slow for a second and let's just ponder what's being said here because this has immense significance for our lives. Seated next to the Father is our Savior, radiant in glory in heaven. In fact, the angels are enraptured by his glory and by the significance of what has taken place. They were that way before he came to earth, and then he came to earth and accomplished that mission. Fully God, fully man, the Alpha and the Omega, the last Adam, the one who was the perfect sacrifice, our great high priest, as he exists in heaven next to the Father, five wounds visible to all. A moment-by-moment reminder of what the sacrifice really cost. A moment-by-moment reminder for all of heaven of what Jesus Christ actually sacrificed to die for our sins. Charles Wesley taught us to sing this. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. He pours effectual prayers. They strongly Plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransom 
sinner die. The son seated as an advocate for you, for you, for you. Pleading with the father, pleading for our sins, pleading for help in our time of need. And if the actual bodily reminder of Christ's sacrifice next to the father is not enough, get this, he's praying unceasingly, unceasingly. And he's praying against the enemies that are arrayed against us to accuse us, whether it's the enemy, the world, the flesh. It doesn't matter. He's praying against all of this. And he's praying, he's praying for you by name. Okay, these are not the generic prayers that we tend to pray. Lord, just, you know, bless the galaxy and everybody that lives in it. Or, or Lord, bless my children, whatever their names are, you know. Those places that we forget specifics. That's not where Christ is. Every time there's an accusation, we have, we have an advocate up there saying, hey, back off. She's mine. No, no, no. You don't understand. Back off. He's with me. Back off. I own her. She's with me. I once arrived at the Philadelphia airport with just enough time to get through the screening process so that I get onto my flight and get out of there. But when I arrived there, I was stunned to see the line that was backed up, not only away from the screening area, and I'd never seen this before, all the way down the terminal, and not only all the way down the terminal, but the end of one of the terminals, Terminal B, there's a hotel. It went all the way into the hotel, into the lobby of the hotel. I'm standing there looking at the line. I'm thinking, I'm never going to make my flight. And then I remembered, I got a friend. I know a guy. And so I, I had a friend who was well-placed with the airline, and I, I called him for help. And he came to me in the line, took me out of the line, and began to escort me forward. Now, because this was Philadelphia, you know, this is the place where they belt Santa with snowballs at the Eagles games. Um, <laughs> People don't take kindly to line jumpers. But each time we were stopped, my friend just kept saying, he's fine. He's with me. Went to the screening area, needed to get through. He's fine. He's with me. Went to my gate, needed to get to the front line. He's fine. He's with me. You see, because Jesus died and rose on the third day and is now seated next to the Father, we have an advocate in heaven who is constantly saying, Yo, Satan, back off. She's with me. She's with me. He's mine. I own them. I paid the price for their sins. I've covered that accusation. It doesn't matter anymore. Father, bless them. Father, let them feel the richness of your grace this morning. Father, pour out your love upon them on this day. Each time there's a blame. Each time there's an accusation, any charge against us, the Savior is shouting up in heaven, she's with me, he's mine. Each time there's blame. And this is how often he's doing it, day and night, day and night. Hebrews chapter 7, he ever lives to make intercession for us day and night. You see the difference that having an advocate makes, that our standing in heaven is as secure as Christ's standing in heaven. You know what that means? That's why you're going to make it. That's why you're going to cross the finish line. 
That's why when the graduation picture, if you saw it today, was published, your face would be in the picture. Not because you have this internal fortitude or you're a strong person or you're going to make it, you're going to power through. No, because he's up there. He's one. He's fixed. He's praying. He's pulling for you. So Paul said to the Romans, who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, who is at the right hand of God. He is interceding for us. Christ is seated and interceding means we get an advocate. So what does intercession accomplish? It means we get an advocate. And then secondly, and finally, it means we get sympathy. We get sympathy. Let's go to another verse in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. This is what the writer of Hebrews said. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So here we discover that Jesus is not just the great high priest, but part of what makes him the great high priest is that he is a sympathetic high priest who understands exactly what we're going through. I want to think about this a little bit with you, and I want to think about a couple of things specifically from this passage that we can pull out, this Hebrews 4 passage. And the first thing I think about is that the great high priest assumes something about us. He assumes that we are weak. He assumes we're weak. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because we're weak, because we have Weaknesses. Weaknesses are an, are an assumption in the text. The question is not whether you're weak. The question is whether you're clued in to how you're weak. God knows we're weak. And in fact, an essential part of God's program in our life, part of his agenda, is to convince us of something he already knows about us, which is that we are weak, and that's why we need a great high priest, because we're weak. If you're here and you don't know Jesus you actually might find this to be the hardest thing to come to terms with in life. That when it comes to your salvation, there's nothing you can do. That you must cast yourself upon a Savior completely, that in fact the only thing you bring to the salvation project is the very sin upon which, from which you need to be redeemed. That we bring nothing. That we need God completely. That we are people in need because we are Weak. And so God's agenda for our life is to convince us over time of the very thing that he already knows about us. And he does that by showing us over time the weaknesses that we have. The, the things that we tend to boast in. You know, the things we secretly take credit for or exalt in or are proud of or Paul often uses the term boast in. God says, you know what? Those things, that's what, that's what I'm targeting. Those are in my crosshairs. That's what I'm going after. Those things that will compete with me for supremacy in your life, those things that convince you that, yeah, it was primarily God. It was almost exclusively God, but it was some of me. God says, no, no, no. You need to see what I see. You need to know what I know. I'm bringing you to a point of weakness in your life where you understand what's already evident to all of heaven. You are weak. You need me. And so he gives us a thorn in the flesh. 
Or so he gives us an area where we're just growing slower. Or we experience the effects of an injury unexpectedly. Or one of the children are not doing what we thought or not in the place that we thought they would be. Or we're just aging, getting older, getting slower. And God is tutoring us on how actually in the kingdom of God, his power is perfected in our weakness. But he's coming, it comes to us as he exposes us to our weakness. This past week, I was uh, with the pastors and wives, evening together, enjoyed an evening together over at Paul's house. By the way, I, I just want you to know, I, I'm so encouraged by the fellowship that the pastors and wives are enjoying in these days and how increasingly we're not just a, a group of people that are trying to find one another or just in, in loose orbit around one another, but God is forming us into a team under Paul's leadership. I'm just so grateful to God for that. Anyway, Paul asked me if I'd teach that night. So I, I, uh, I got started and I kind of launched into what I wanted to say. And, you know, I was, I was feeling pretty good. I was feeling like the groove, you know, as the Spirit of God felt like the Spirit of God was there. And I came to a place in the message where I wanted to cite this passage. It was one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I've thought about it. I've taught about it before. I just, you know... I, I, and I went to cite it, and I couldn't find it. I don't mean I couldn't find it in the Bible. I mean I couldn't find it anywhere up here. And so I kept looking, and I just thought, well, let me just wait a second. And so I, I just waited a second. And I was looking at the group, and they were looking at me. And I said, if I just wait another second, I know it's going to come. And so I'm looking at the group, and they're looking at me. And, you know, five minutes later, I'm looking at the group, they're looking at me. I'm getting nothing. I'm looking at the internal data, and it's coming up empty box. You know, there's nothing in there whatsoever. I, I, they're looking at me. I'm looking at them. Eventually, Lance and Rob peel off this sort of card game. You know, I'm just looking. You know, everybody's looking to use their time. Paul's off in the corner smoking a cigarette. You know, oh, there's all kind of stuff going on, and I'm getting nothing whatsoever. So I say this. I say, you know what? Hang on. Let me just flip over to the passage. And so I flip over to the chapter in the Bible where I know the passage is, and I'm looking and scanning, and they're looking at me, and awkward silence is all over the place, and I can't find the passage even in the chapter that I know it's in in the Bible, and so I just abandon it, and I move on in my message. About 10 minutes later, while Paul's giving the closing announcements, the passage lands in my mind with a thud. And so I just say, I just shout out the passage. You know, in the moment, in, in such a random way possible, and Paul's just looking at me like, thank you, Dave, for that totally random remembrance that has no context whatsoever with what I'm saying right now. I've got dozens of those kinds of illustrations. And they're all a daily reminder to me that I am weak. I need God. Are you struggling this morning? Christ can identify with your weakness. I'm not saying he knows about him in a generic way. I'm saying he can identify with it so much he sympathizes with you. Are you tempted in some way that you think is unusual? 
some way you think is uncommon. No, no. Christ has been tempted in the same way, and he understands. Are you slowing down? It was a slow walk to Jerusalem. It was a slow walk to Calvary. You have a high priest in heaven. Listen, he gets it. He gets it. And he knows how to pray for you in the midst of your struggle. So that's, that's the first point is he, we have a high priest and he, he assumes we are weak. But the second point is that <clears throat> we get Christ's sympathy at that very point of weakness. Whatever was coming to your mind, that's where you experience the sympathy of God. That's where you get the sympathy of God. For we do not have, again, the writer of Hebrews, a high priest who was unable to sympathize. Where is he unable to sympathize with us? In our weaknesses. The very weaknesses that are coming to your mind, that's where he is able to sympathize. And the guy who's sympathizing with us, he's got some serious game. I mean, just check out his resume. Tempted in every respect. Tempted in every respect, yet without sin. I mean, the point is that Christ didn't walk the earth in some kind of protective custody, not experiencing the very things that you and I experience. He didn't have a heavenly posse standing around him that was just pushing away all temptation. Oh, no, no, no. He experienced the full wrath of temptation in a way you and I couldn't even relate to. I mean, think about it. You and I have had some bad moments, but we've never had Satan himself appear and begin to tempt us personally, individually. <laughs> I mean, listen, I know we've got some spiritual people in this room, but I don't think Satan himself is bothering with any of us. I think we're like getting the C team, you know, Barney and Buster the Demons. And they're just like cutting their teeth on us. They're like trying to harass us. Boo, I'm a demon, you know. And, and that can be very fearsome at times. Hey, stop harassing me, you demon. No, no, no. Christ had Satan himself. Listen to this quote I brought. Raymond Brown says, quote, No one on earth before or since has ever been brought through such spiritual desolation and human anguish. For this reason, he can help us in our moments of temptation. He is aware of our needs because he has experienced to the full the pressures and the testings of life in this godless world. See, what he's saying is that, that Jesus Christ got the worst that the world could throw at him. Jesus Christ got the worst of what the enemy could throw at him. I was thinking about this earlier. You know, think about which, for the guys, you can probably relate to this illustration, which boxer best understood how powerful Muhammad Ali could be when he threw a punch? Was it Foreman, Foreman George Foreman, who lasted eight rounds with him and then was knocked out? Or was it Leon Spinks, who was with him in the ring for fifth whole rounds. See, I want to suggest to you that Leon Spinks got all that Ali had to offer. He went the distance with Muhammad Ali. Here's my point. Christ received the gale force of all the world had to offer, all the flesh had to offer, all the enemy had to offer. 
And because of that experience, he won this distinction that makes an enormous difference for your life today. He is He's able to sympathize with you this morning. You know that thing you woke up with this morning? You know, or maybe you woke up and it was far from your mind and then boom, it was right here. He's able to sympathize. He understands what that evokes in you. He knows why it's so painful. Are you overwhelmed by some kind of temptation that you feel is dogging you, that you feel is just enmeshed around your feet? He is able to to sympathize. Are you feeling alone this morning? He's able to sympathize with your weakness. And though you feel alone, in actuality, you are not alone. In fact, you serve a Savior who was crucified alone. He was crucified forsaken. He hung suspended on the cross and cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that you would never be forsaken. He was alone so that you would never be alone. Christ is with you. He's for you. You have an advocate, a perfect high priest who's sympathizing with that weakness that you feel. You're not alone in this battle with lust. No. No, you have a faithful high priest who sympathizes with your weakness. What's going on with anger in your family? Yeah, it's bad. I get it. You have a Savior who sympathizes with your weakness. The fear that you're experiencing, the finances, they're bad. It's bad, Dave. You don't understand. I don't, but I know one who does. He sympathizes with your weakness. See, in Christ, the advocate, we find one whose ear is inclined to us, one who understands the feelings that we have, who comprehends the struggle that we're going through, one who sympathizes, and not only sympathizes, but he is praying incessantly for the very thing that's burdening us right at this very moment. Actually, here's another thing to think about. Because Christ is able to sympathize for us, we don't need to spend our life sympathizing for ourselves. You know, we don't need to, to, to fall into the self-sympathy that can so often, I mean, let me be honest, characterize me. You know, if you're like me, the growing awareness of the weakness that I have or, or the battle with sin is really the beginning of a pity parter. A pity party. You know, we're, we're funny. We sin, and then we feel sorry for ourselves, and then we get angry over the consequences of our sin, and so we sin again. And it's just this merry-go-round that we're constantly on, and it's almost as if God steps in the middle of that through the person of Jesus Christ, and he says, hey, Dave, no worries. I got this sympathy thing covered. You just enjoy me. You just go and obey me. You've got, you've got something far greater than sympathy for yourself. You've got the sympathy of God on your side. What else do we need? Listen, Christ certainly earned the right to rest. Because as I pointed out earlier, a glorious victory earns an epic rest. But our high priest will not rest. Our high priest will not rest until his people are finally home. Our high priest will not rest until his people are finally safe in his arms. And so I guess the question that makes me want to ask you this morning is, are you one of his 
people. Have you called upon Christ to save you because you realize you have needs you can never meet in this life? Because you realize that that your heart is restless and it's not going to find any rest until you rest in the only one who can save your soul, who can sympathize with your needs, and that's Jesus Christ. If you don't know where you are, I want to encourage you, talk to the person that you came with today. Or, or come up and talk to me at the end. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to talk with you about these things. He is interceding for all of us right now that we may rest, that you may rest, that I may rest. Isn't it great news to remember that today we have an advocate Let me just read this in closing. Again, Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's pray.